This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. In podcast 48, we're shifting our focus to the vital topic of nutrition and malnutrition. And by this, we mean all forms of malnutrition, as we have a fascinating report on obesity in developing countries. Then we hear from IFAD's lead technical specialist on nutrition, Joyce Unjoro, and dive into what's driving food inflation. We'll be talking about its impact on access to healthy diets, particularly in developing countries, and about how IFAD's supporting small-scale farmers to ensure better access to nutritious food. Our conversation then turns to the future as we discuss the outlook and opportunities for addressing these challenges with Nadine Bosa, IFAD's Director for Food Systems Coordination and Chief of the Means of Implementation at the UN Food Systems Coordination Hub. She gives us the main and most important findings of this year's UN Food Systems Stocktaking Moment that took place at the end of July and her insights as IFAD's director for the Food Systems Summit and Board. We'll be exploring the critical role of financing, women's empowerment, and the need for global cooperation. Next up, we meet with our latest Recipes for Change chef, Walter El Nagar, a renowned chef and advocate for sustainable cuisine. Don't miss out as he talks about the role of chefs in promoting healthy and sustainable diets. And finally, we head down to Kenya to speak to Ifad's Moses Abukari about the benefits of cultivating one of our top-valued chain crops in developing countries. We're talking, of course, about sorghum. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. Coming up, time to start talking nutrition. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. To kick off episode 48, we're tackling an issue that might surprise some. While you might think that overweight and obesity aren't major concerns in lower middle-income countries, the numbers tell a different story. That's right, Michelle. In these countries, often referred to as LMICs, between three to four out of every 10 people are dealing with the challenges of being overweight or obese. And the consequences are serious. These conditions significantly increase the risk of non-communicable diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, cancer, and chronic respiratory illnesses. Shockingly, these diseases are responsible for the leading causes of death in up to 85% of the population in LMIX. It's a critical issue, and today we have a special guest to shed some light on it. Nutrition and social inclusion expert at IFAD, Ilaria Bianchi, has been working to integrate nutrition into IFAD's projects and strategies, primarily focusing on Western Central Africa. Before joining IFAD, Ilaria spent over a decade as a nutrition specialist with UNICEF and managed programs for various international NGOs. 
Ilaria's true passion is bringing evidence and resources to help transition food systems toward sustainable, healthy diets. Our reporter, Nora Bona, had a chance to speak with her about the challenges of obesity in developing countries in the East and Southern Africa region. Overweight and obesity has always existed in low- and middle-income countries, but of course to a lesser extent than now. In 1975, for example, overweight and obesity prevalence was around 10% in low-income countries and 20 in middle-income ones. However, in 2016, the prevalence has already doubled to tripled, reaching 25% of people in low-income countries and almost 45% in upper-middle-income countries. Today, it is predicted that by 2030, one in five women and one in 13 men will be living with obesity in Africa. And this proportion are almost the same than those at global level, where the prediction is one in five women and one in seven men. The rate of increase in overweight and obesity in low middle income countries was twice higher than in high income countries between 20 and 26. This means that unless we take action now in low-middle-income countries, it is likely that those rates will continue to raise. While in the past, nutrition transition and high prevalence of overnutrition were recorded predominantly among urban population, today, globally, rural populations are undergoing the same transition, and in some areas, they are beginning to show higher prevalence of overweight and obesity compared to urban areas. What are some of the problems this is causing communities? Well, with overweight and obesity, we face two different types of consequences, health consequences and economic consequences. Several studies suggest that diets lacking adequate nutrition are nowadays the leading cause of death worldwide with 74% of deaths globally happening because of non-communicable diseases and 77% of these deaths occurring in low-middle-income countries. From a household point of view, we do observe that the livelihood of the household can really be affected because overweight and obesity can then prevent vulnerable people from getting out of poverty. Let's just think about the costs of health services and medical care and the implication of being sick in continents like Africa and unable to work because of health problems related to overweight and obesity. Productivity and household wealth can be seriously affected, as well as the overall resilience of the household. At country level, of course, this translates into an impact on GDP. Just as an example, in 2019, low-income countries spent 6.28 billion US dollars on overweight and obesity. And why are obesity rates increasing in the developing world? The reasons are many. I will mention just three of them. First, diet quality. Obesity rates in low-middle-income countries coincides with the increasing availability and consumption of sugar-sweetened beverage, fast foods, and ultra-processed foods, like snacking, for example, that do not meet, of course, people's nutritional needs and do contribute to the increased pandemic of overweight and obesity. Second, 
the fact that the nutritious food is becoming more and more expensive compared to unhealthy food. Looking at food prices worldwide, studies found that the cheapest source of energy was the fats and oils, and another cheap one was the sugar. In low-middle-income countries, for example, fruits and vegetables are at least five times more expensive than starchy foods. And the same goes for fish and, uh, and meat and eggs. And what is even more surprising is that the cost of an healthy diet is much more expensive in low-middle-income countries than in high-income ones. Third, another big reason, main reason, has to be found on the lack of regulation on the food processing industry. The majority of low-middle-income countries have not yet reoriented their food and nutrition policies, strategies, capacity, and mindset to include overnutrition. And finally, why is collecting data on obesity important? And what does the future hold in terms of solutions supported by IFAD through its work with communities? Thanks for this question, because collecting data and evidence is crucial in order to evaluate the effectiveness of the intervention targeting overweight and obesity. And it is also crucial to formulate recommendations that then can orient policymakers and strategies. Unfortunately, current interventions do not report on effectiveness. For example, in developed countries, there are a number of ongoing media campaigns to prevent overweight and obesity, but their effectiveness is not evaluated. Neither is their potential for scaling and impact in developing countries. IFAD can contribute to prevent overweight and obesity through a number of interventions. First, by encouraging the diversification of food production to include fruits, vegetables, and other nutritious foods seeds, and men. Second, given the close link between diet quality and different components of the food system, IFAS interventions on value chains, focusing on the transport, trade, packaging, processing, and sales aspects of the food system have the potential to help reduce all three forms of malnutrition, including overweight and obesity. Examples include all value chain addition intervention. Third, another area of work for IFAD is engaging in policy dialogue to influence regulation on salt, trans fat and sugar, sugar taxation, food fortification, reviewing food labels and many others. And of course, considering our strong engagement with the farmer and community organizations. In this journey, of course, we are not alone. If it has to continue establishing partnership and challenging them to lead overweight and obesity efforts, partnership not only with the Ministry of Agriculture, but also with other sectors, such as health, education, trade, the involvement of the civil society and existing nutrition networks, and of course, the private sector which has a role to play in reversing obesity trends and promote a good business that discourage more obesity. So we all need to work together and we all must adapt our strategy and efforts to respond to this new reality. We, and we have no time to lose. That was Ilaria Bianchi talking to our reporter, Noah Bona. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. 
As we look at the global food landscape, one of the pressing issues is rising food inflation. To help us understand what hides behind it and the impact it has on access to healthy diets, our reporter Rosa Gonzalez spoke to IFAD's Joyce Njoro. Rampant inflation is having a major effect on food prices and on the quality of nutrition for small-scale farmers in developing countries. Rural households allocate a substantial part of their earnings to food and the reality is that billions of people cannot afford a nutritious diet. We have lead technical specialist at IFAD, Joyce Njoro, with us today. Joyce, what impact is food inflation having on the quality of nutrition for small-scale farmers in developing countries? I think the first thing is to consider what is driving this inflation. In many countries, we are seeing that the key drivers are climate change, the Ukraine crisis, and also countries are still recovering from COVID-19. And all these factors are putting a lot of pressure on the food systems and the ability to ensure access to healthy diets, particularly in developing countries. The price of food and its affordability are key to meeting households' daily dietary needs. The change in food prices tends to drastically affect consumers in developing countries more than those of developed countries. And according to the United Nations, there is an estimated cost of healthy diets globally of 3.75 US dollars. This means that healthy diets are far more expensive than the international poverty line of US dollars 1.9. It is not surprising, therefore, to see that 3.1 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet, and a third of these are from Africa. So inadequate incomes are a major reason why 42% of people cannot afford healthy diets in the world. So that means that the poorest people, and most of these people who live in rural areas, cannot acquire enough essential nutrients and nutritious food groups to get at least the minimum dietary needs. For example, in Kenya and Cameroon, we see that the households spend up to 40% of their income on food. And due to food prices, this can also go up to 60 to 80% of the household expenditure. In economic hard times, we see people with less money available making hard choices about what bills to pay and what foods they can eat. What are we seeing out there? Yeah, it's really a trade-off when households are affected by these economic hard times. So we are seeing a lot of options and different coping mechanisms, particularly for the poor households. There is more consumption of poorer quality diets. So the poor households tend to consume a higher share of dietary energy in starchy staples than the recommended due to their relative affordability. Then there is also a higher propensity to sell the produce that they grow. It's not automatic that even when they sell the food, then they invest the money on nutrition. And then the other coping mechanism, reduction of meal frequency. So instead of having three meals a day, that can be reduced to two or to one. And then this has a negative impact for the most vulnerable women, lactating women, pregnant women, and also school-going children and also the children who are younger. There's a tendency to marry girls when they are young because that reduces the number of mouths to be fed in the household. And while this is, I mean, can be considered as culturally okay, we know that when it comes to marrying young girls, children born to adolescent mothers are more likely to have low birth weight, suffer from poor nutritional status, and experience stunting later in their life. But one other interesting thing also we have noticed is that the households tend to have a higher dependency on wild foods. And this is in particularly on areas which are home to indigenous peoples. And how is IFAD tweaking what it offers in support of small-scale farmers to deliver good quality nutritious food to them and to their families? 
IFAD recognizes that small-scale producers, rural women, youth, indigenous peoples, hold many of the solutions for healthier food systems and planetary health. And also that the rural small producers produce over 30% of global food and up to 80% in some parts of Africa and Asia. So what IFAD does is that it aims to improve the nutrition of all households, primarily through improvements in dietary diversity. This is accompanied by approaches that make sure that we don't leave anyone behind. Nutrition-sensitive agriculture is a food-based approach to agricultural development, and that puts nutritionally rich foods and dietary diversity at the heart of overcoming all forms of malnutrition, so be it undernutrition, micronutrient deficiency, or even overnutrition. So this entails building the capacities of smallholder producers for them to adopt good practices, for example, diversified production, make sure they have access to inputs, they have access to finances, in order for them to produce nutrient-dense foods while also linking them to markets. Because we know that there's no household that can produce everything they need. They still need also money to buy food in markets. Another approach is also the value chain, making sure that our value chains are nutrition-sensitive. If it uses a nutrition lens to select the kind of commodity to invest in and also to look at opportunities where we can increase nutritional value within the value chain. So that could be either reducing nutrient loss, women's workload, or it can also be increasing opportunities for employment along the value chain. And all these interventions are accompanied by nutrition education, social behavior change communication, because we know that nutrition really, and maybe diversifying diets, is an approach that is really pushed by behavior. What would you like to see moving forward? How are we preparing for what comes next? Yes, so the outlook uh, into the future, some may say it looks bleak, but I think there's always opportunities that are ahead of us. So one of the things that we need to do is building resilience of smallholder households to build their adaptive capacity to climate change and other shocks. Then another important thing that we need to do is to increase the financing to nutrition. This is both domestic financing and also from development partners. One other thing I would like to say, I should even have started with that one, is the importance of linking women empowerment and nutrition. Globally, women make up 43% of the agricultural workforce. And if female farmers had the same access to productive resources as men, then they could increase yields by 20 to 30 percent and a total agricultural output by 2.5 and 4 percent and lift 100 to 150 billion people out of hunger. Women also play a central role as principal caretakers in the households. So they determine what households consume. It will be very important that when we look at programming, we closely link women empowerment and nutrition. Thanks to Joyce and to Rosie for that interview. Next up, we hear from Nadine Gobosa about the challenges posed by the rising of food prices. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Nadine Bosa is EFAT's Director for Food Systems Coordination and Chief of the Means of Implementation at the UN Food Systems Coordination Hub. I spoke to her about the main and most important findings of this year's UN Food Systems Summit stocktaking moment, and we'll also be diving into how the evolving global landscape, including the Ukraine crisis, impacts the financing mechanisms needed for the transformation of food systems. 
Nadine emphasizes the importance of political leadership, societal awareness, and the need for collective action to address these challenges. And she will also be drawing attention to the potential for women's empowerment to lead to significant improvements in food security and livelihoods. Nadine, thank you very much for joining us on Farms Food Future. The first thing I want to ask you is, since the first Food Systems Summit two years ago, how has the picture changed? The picture, if I can say, the food system landscape changed quite drastically over the past two years. There was a call to improve the food systems in the world, but since then there's been the war in Ukraine, the food energy finance crisis. So many countries have found themselves in an acute crisis related to the international development and the food situation, the food system situation has not been able to progress as expected. On the contrary, uh, most countries find themselves in a most difficult situation. We see that more specifically with the low-income countries. While they had committed to invest more domestic resources in food system, they are challenged today to invest in the food system even more than before because of the tight fiscal situation they find themselves in, the gloomy economic situation, and also the fact that uh, most development partners are equally challenged to increase the level of support to low-income countries on, on food system transformation because themselves are facing budgetary constraints. The need to transform the food system is even bigger than before because we see the impact now on food security, on resilience, on supply chains, and all, if I can say, the, the trickle-down effect we are seeing on food system on the crisis. So it's a tough reminder that we need to move away from emergency and really kind of invest in transforming the food system so that we can make crisis a story of the past. The stock take that just took place, if you were to sum it up, what would you say were the main, most important findings? First is that uh, financing food system transformation is high on the agenda. It's a priority for the countries. Most of the countries, and here I'm talking from the perspective of the countries of the global south, have really stepped up efforts in terms of domestic resource mobilization. We work, for example, with Niger, helping them to look at their national budget for food systems. And we basically saw that they were able over the past four years to increase by 70% their financing to food system. And this is quite extraordinary, knowing that uh, Niger is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world. We know that bilateral aid is not enough, and one of the main findings and conclusions is that really reforming the international financial architecture for countries to be able to access through uh, multilateral development banks, regional banks, public development banks, to more concessional lending is essential. And we are really talking of injecting new liquidity into the system. Transformative investment not just more investment, but investment which is conducive of nutrition, of environment, of decent livelihood, is essential. And this is also a big agenda with the private sector. What would you say needs to be done to move things along in the right direction? I think what needs to be done is really political leadership in the sense that, I mean, the Food System Summit plus two brought again the issue at the top of the development agenda. But I would say that food systems is not something that has seen yet social mobilization. What I mean by social mobilization is not a topic that is out there on the street. 
uh, as I mentioned before, I mean, when you talk about climate a few years ago, nobody knew what it is. But today, you can ask anybody about climate, even a kid on the street, they can tell you what it is. Food system transformation is, for me, as big today as climate, because we know that uh, the SDGs, the climate agenda, cannot be achieved without food system transformation. Food systems are responsible for one-third of the green gas emission. And not many people realize that unless the food system are transformed, the climate agreement cannot be achieved. We are all living in the heat in Rome today, and uh, basically the UN Secretary General were talking of the boiling temperatures now. So I think what needs to happen is that the, the public at large needs to be made aware of the importance of food systems for the planet and for the people, so that there can be also more civil society pressure for investing and transforming food systems. We know that the cost of inaction today when it comes to food system is higher than the cost of action. It means that without food system transformation, as I said, no climate agreement can be achieved. Hunger in the world cannot be eradicated. Also, in terms of um, ending poverty and decent livelihood cannot be achieved. So it's a huge agenda. But I would say that it's not only a certain agenda, it's also another agenda because the transition of the food system is also essential and vital in the global north. Just like climate, if this transition does not happen in the north, then the achievement of food system transformation cannot be happened. So we have to remember that it's a global agenda. It's not only a certain issue. Nadine, are you optimistic for the future of food systems and clearing the hurdles for producers and operators in developing countries to have access to affordable and nutritious quality food? Um, in terms of being optimistic for the future of food system, I feel like, again, I will compare it with the climate agenda. I don't think we really have a choice, I mean, as humanity and the planet, because it's basically driving, if I can say, the sustainability agenda in a, in a direction that basically put people and the planet at risk. As I said, it's not only a question of hunger in the global south. People have to realize that food system is also about the climate transition, it is about an environmental transition, it's a security and social agenda because we see the consequence of poverty, people leaving their countries because they don't have a choice. So it basically has ramification to many components of society. I think it's also important just to make it very concrete that, as I said, food system is also about malnutrition. And when we talk about malnutrition, it's not only hunger, it's also obesity in developing countries and in developed countries. So the ramification in terms of health system, in terms of environment, in terms of climate change, in terms of poverty are huge. So I think at some point it's a realization that we don't have the choice but to move into a food system transformation. And I think once that realization will come about, uh, we will see uh, the kind of mobilization we need around food system transformation. What it means for rural people, small holders, small producers are at the heart of food systems. We have to know that about 85% of the farms are less than two hectares. So basically, uh, the small producers in the world are at the heart of food systems. And uh, I think there's also growing realization that there cannot be food systems without looking at the issues of the small producers and small operators in the food system. So it's a process. It takes time. Unfortunately, time is not on all sides, and I hope that uh, things will continue to evolve quickly, swiftly, because I think time is of the essence. 
Thank you, Nadine. You can find out more by going to www.unfoodsystemshub.org. Make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In podcast 45, we looked at the impacts and solutions for climate change on small island developing states. Then in podcast 46, we heard all about the power of sending money home to help development. And in podcast 47, we explored ways to get young people engaged in agriculture. This is Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Next up, we have Ifaz Isabel de la Pena. She brings us the latest on the Hinterland Environmentally Sustainable Agricultural Development, or HESAD, project in Guyana. Implemented by the Ministry of Agriculture, this initiative engages with the highly remote Amerindian communities. They are the indigenous peoples of Guyana who live in the hinterland deep within the interior of the country. She talked to Norbona about the issues facing the community, particularly nutrition. Well, what we call the Hesad project in Guyana, which is implemented by the Ministry of Agriculture, it works with very remote communities of Amerindians, which are the indigenous peoples of Guyana, living in the, in the hinterland, in the interior of the country. And the project supports these communities to develop their own investment plans in a participatory way. So communities can decide on the type of investment plan that they need, it can be a business plan for economic activities. It can be a, what we call collective plans for public goods such as solar panels or small rural infrastructure, etc. Or it can be training plans to build technical capacities in the community. And these three types of plans, they complement each other and they aim to strengthen community resilience uh, as well as food security and nutrition. Thank you. And what are the issues facing the community here, particularly nutrition? Um, well, first, I would say chronic child malnutrition or stunting. Although the rate is below 10% at national level, um, stunting affects over 20% of children in Amerindian villages. There's also a high incidence of overweight and obesity, as well as non-communicable diseases most of which is linked to the consumption of a poor diet. So in the hinterland, diets are quite monotonous. It's mainly cereals and meat. And there's a very low consumption of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, etc. And the, the reason behind this, uh, part of it is cultural, part of it is economic. Some 43% of the population cannot afford a healthy diet. The cost of a healthy diet in Guyana is... 4.9 US dollars a day, that's well above the Latin America regional average of 3.9 dollars a day. And Latin America is already the region in the world with the highest cost of a healthy diet. And as you can imagine, in these remote areas where the project works, the cost of a healthy diet is even higher. Another issue that, the, that these Amerindian communities are, are facing is that they are moving away from their traditional indigenous foods towards higher consumption of processed foods, packaged foods, soft drinks, etc. And this is also affecting the quality of their diets. And what are you doing to help alleviate this situation in practical terms? Well, first, 
the the Hassad project is trying to raise nutrition awareness and promote behavior change to improve the quality of the diets. And they're doing this by combining two types of interventions. First is what we call the more formal or traditional nutrition trainings and food demonstrations in the community. And these are carried out in partnership with the Ministry of Health through um, training of trainers methodology. And they're combining these kind of formal trainings with some more innovative methodologies such as street theater performance and a radio serial drama that they're doing with, um, with an organization called Merundoi. And here what they do is that they develop a script and a storyline for the theater and the radio that includes some key nutrition messages in a way that is culturally adapted to the target audience. So really participants can relate to the stories no? and, and there's a higher chance of influencing their, their behavior. Secondly, the project is also developing an indigenous recipe book, which is a first of its kind repository of, of indigenous recipes. As I was mentioning before, traditional recipes are being lost, especially among the youth. And um, this recipe book will contribute to preserving indigenous food cultural heritage, but it will also contribute to nutrition um, because each recipe will include what we call a nutrition tip. So um, ideas and suggestions in which you can make a meal more balanced, more healthy or nutrition. And finally, What are the results of the ESAD project so far and what's next? Well, the project will finish in March 2022. So the results in terms of improved diets will be measured at that point. So far, the project has uh, managed to raise nutrition awareness in 100 Amerindian villages, training over 7,300 people in good nutritional practices and the benefits of a healthy diet. And I was mentioning before, there's also practical food demonstrations so the participants can, can um, practice these recipes and then replicate them at home. And then regarding the, the indigenous recipe book, which will be a key legacy of the project, um, 50 recipes have already been compiled from different Amerindian groups. And the book is being put together and will be launched in the coming months. And aside from the book, they're also developing these short videos with the recipes that can easily be shared on social media. And so you can increase dissemination of these indigenous recipes, especially among the youth. That was Isabel de la Peña talking to our reporter, Noor Bonner. You can check out episode 40 of Farms Food Future to hear more about native communities across the world. Coming up, stay tuned to meet our latest Recipes for Change chef. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Introducing our latest Recipes for Change chef, Walter El Nagar, a passionate chef with a multicultural background and an advocate for change. While Chef El Nagar has achieved remarkable success in the culinary world, he has always remained a dedicated activist at heart. Leveraging his platform, he actively raises awareness about social and political issues. In 2022, he opened Refettorio Geneva, an establishment aimed at combating food waste and promoting social integration. Our reporter Norbonna asked him about his perspective on promoting healthy and sustainable diets. 
Yes, I decided to join IFAD Recipe for Change campaign because I strongly believe in the power of food and the critical role it plays in addressing global challenges. For example, hunger, poverty, and environmental degradation. Uh, as a chef, I witnessed firsthand the impact that food can have on individual and community. For example, here in Geneva, where I founded Mater, and I run a restaurant called Refectorio. By joining the campaign, I saw an opportunity to use my culinary skill and knowledge to contribute to a larger movement towards sustainable and just food system. And I think IFAD is a champion in this. Um, the campaign aligns with my personal value and professional aspiration. And it also provides a platform to collaborate with people that think like me and organizations that are like-minded. We can share innovative ideas. We can implement practical solutions to make a very big real difference in the life of farmers and uh, communities that are in a difficult situation. I think the, the campaign focuses on promoting local and nutritious uh, and culturally diverse food. And this resonates a lot with me, uh, as I believe that preserving culinary tradition and empowering local food producers is essential uh, for creating a resilient and inclusive food system, which is my mission. Thank you. And what role do chefs play in making food system more sustainable and just? But I think the chefs play a crucial role in making a better food system. Uh, as culinary professionals, uh, we have a unique opportunity to influence both the production and the consumption sides of the food chain. Uh, we do this every day. Uh, for example, through advocacy and education, we can raise awareness about sustainable food practices by advocating for local, organic, healthy, locally sourced ingredients, through cooking demonstration, workshop, public engagement on social media. We can educate uh, consumers to have a better uh, impact on their local environment uh, by promoting seasonality, for example. One big thing that we do here, it's like reducing food waste, uh, supporting fair trade. You know, chef can inspire individual, individual and colleagues to make a conscious decision that benefits them first and the whole planet. And then we can design like menu that are that reflect all of this by being like locally sourced, very diverse. We can incorporate organic and seasonal products. We can promote biodiversity. In fact, we are like uh, the shiny point of the food system, especially in an urban environment. And how important is organic produce? Well, uh, as a chef, I think organic produce is, the, is of utmost importance for several reasons. First, organic farming uh, prior prioritizes the health and the well-being of the environment. Uh, it promotes soil fertility, biodiversity and water conservation. And then by avoiding the use of synthetic pesticides, herbicides and generally modified organisms, organic agriculture helps preserve the natural ecosystem upon which our food production relies. And that's the only way to get tasty and incredible ingredients. And then uh, organic produce is beneficial for the human health. And our job is to feed people. So this should be our first priority to make healthy and nutritious food. Then organic uh, farming fosters social sustainability, provides opportunity for small scale farmers, especially in developing country to earn a fair income and improve their livelihood. And additionally, uh, you know, the growth of organic sector encourage biodiversity and protect traditional crops, variety, and preserves at the end the cultural heritage of, of a specific region. 
And what do you want to say to young people living in small-scale farms in developing countries? Well, this is a big thing for me, uh, and I try to be uh, as encouraging as I can. Uh, I want to emphasize that the importance of recognizing the immense potential and value for your role in shaping the future of agricultural food system. In fact, you should embrace your heritage. Often you have like uh, a rich agricultural heritage and traditional knowledge that should be celebrated and preserved. Your local food system are vital part of a cultural identity. And by embracing and promoting traditional farming practices and culinary tradition, you contribute to the preservation of your culture. Then you should like explore sustainable practices. Is it crucial? to explore and adopt sustainable farming practices. They prioritize environmental stewardship, but you should be empowered to do that. And also resilient. Collaborate and network with the farming community around the world. Use the internet, use the net, with local organization, uh, international initiative like IFAD. They can provide invaluable opportunities for learning, knowledge sharing, and access resources that you're lacking right now. And you should innovate. You should try to diversify, which is not as easy as it sounds, but you should embrace innovation and explore new ways to add value to your product and reach a wider market. Consider diversifying your crops or exploring niche market for unique local products. And then lastly, you should advocate for your rights. You know, you guys often face challenges such as limited access to resources, land tenure issue, and market barriers. It is essential to advocate for your rights and to actively engage in policy discussion and decision-making process that affect your very own livelihoods. By joining forces with other farmers and organizations, you can amplify your voice and create a positive change at local, national, and if you are really great, to the international level. Thanks to Chef El Nagar. You can find out more about him at www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change and also at his own site www.metafondazione.com. This is Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. And now we hear from IFAD's Moses Abukari. He works on the Kenya Cereal Enhancement Program, Climate Resilient Agricultural Livelihoods Window, the KCEPCRAL. Sorghum, a true gem among our value chains, stands at the forefront of their efforts. Moses spoke to our reporter, Noor Bonner, about the opportunities of scaling up sorghum value chains, what those can provide small-scale farmers in developing countries, as well as its nutritional benefits. This was an initiative, a project funded by the European Union and IFAD. And within IFAD, we also have the Adaptation for Smaller Agricultural Program grant funding. And then for the IFAD funding, majority of Kenya, which is in East Africa, has what we call a climate environment called the arid and semi-arid areas where rainfall distribution is becoming less and less. So for those particular farmers that we are targeting, we realize that they, they face challenge first in terms of access to Input and the input means that certified seeds, technology, also finance and uh, access to services. Most of them are hit by drought and therefore they've also been dependent on food aid. Trying to support them that we need to make sure that we have long-term intervention that are adapted to their needs in those particular arid and semi-arid areas. 
risk to climate change is unpredictable. So we also have to include some element of risk transfer, which is basically where we try to introduce crop insurance. And this we build on a model that WFE had uh, promoted and realized that we have to scale this up to embed insurance as part of the package that support the farmers. And how can increased production of cereals like maize, sorghum, millet and associated pulses enhance the resilience of rural households to climate change? The main important is that uh, the choice of uh, the crops that we've introduced in this program, Kenya Kisekrao, is a, a model on adapting to drought tolerant varieties. So we have cereal mixed with a parcel, and here these are tested uh, technology by uh, CGR centers, and these commodities are available in the market that farmers can assess. So with this, we make sure that we select the high yielding varieties for the farmers so that with a minimum effort and input, they can help increase production and income. And here, once they have increased production, they have food security for their own household for consumption, and then with excess, they can also sell to the market to generate income. And why is it important to continue promoting these cereals and associated pulses for nutritional benefits? You see, so apart from maize, which is a stable crop, in the arid and semi-arid areas, we promote sorghum, green grams, beans, and also cowpeas. And as you know, these are more or less what we call the underutilized on orphan crops or neglected crops, but that is the part that we know because of nutrition. But in terms of the climate impact, these are crops that also are adaptable to the effect of changing climate conditions. So with minimal input support, it's able to withstand the agroecological zone where these uh, farmers are operating in. And we also know that um, in cases, maize is not going to last in terms of climate change. So if we want to ensure that the farmers have healthy diet and have access to food that they can grow seasonally in the location that they are in is to promote commodities or crops that are adapted to them. But these are commodities, uh, crops that also have high nutritional values. So we try to also ensure that the farmers have diversification of their food. And then thanks to IFA through the recipe for change, we did a documentary with a, a well-known chef in Kenya who came and used this traditional food of sorghum and green gram to promote what we call a local dish to revitalize it. Besides that, we also teach the farmers to substitute some of their traditional food like spring roll, samosa or chapati instead of wheat to replace it with other sorghum or green gram. And uh, I bet you have been in the field and I tasted some of them. They are very nutritious and some even are promoting like uh, sorghum tea, uh, powdery form that they commercialize to enhance. Because we also want to make sure that the household or children have improved nutritional outcome. And these are the commodities that are available in the community that can help to address these challenges that farmers face instead of uh, relying on maize and sorghum that is not um, adapted or most, in most cases also expensive uh, for the farmers to afford. Thank you. And finally, what opportunities exist for scaling up sorghum value chains in Kenya? There are several opportunities. One is that also in policy directive, Kenya government has uh, indicated what they call a policy on um, flower blending. 
So with that flour blending, they want to reduce the proportion of how uh, the dependence on wheat or maize product to make sure that they have a blended other commodities. And sorghum is one of them that is increasing in coming. And then the government, the current government in Kenya has also prioritized sorghum as an import substitution commodity. Basically, they import a lot of sorghum. So opportunities is that the farmers in different agroecologies are conducive for sorghum production. So farmers in this country have been encouraged to produce. So there's already a big market that is on one side. Also in the beverage industry, we have one of the big beverage providers, both alcoholic and alcoholic that also depend on sorghum. And here the market is already existing that the demand is increasing. So for the farmers that we are supporting, think that if they can able to shift to sorghum, I think there's huge margin that can, can rely on. And then when you also come to value addition, I think um, in various areas of commodities, we teach them on uh, even using not popcorn, we call it sorghum pop or to replace it with maize so that it can increase like snacks or using porridge, for instance, for baby food and the rest. So there's huge market potential. Um, and here's just to make sure that we connect the farmers. We bring their capacities so that they can produce more and link them to the market, which is already available and expanding, not only in Kenya, but also within the sub-region. But more globally, I think in Africa, we have the free African continental trade that is also promoting commodity on um, sorghum, which we also know is a climate-resilient crop, which for the future, this is a the market that need to be tapped. The smaller farmers hold the key to assessing and, and contributing to this market to generate income and also help their environment. And that brings us to the end of episode 48. Thanks as always to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti, and our reporters Rosa Gonzalez and Nora Bona. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 48 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Join us next month for episode 49, where we'll be celebrating rural women and women leaders in agriculture. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of October with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Michelle Tang and the team here at EFAD. Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.